All right, here's what I'm gonna do for this one. I'm gonna pull the script up, mm -hmm. but I'm gonna try to not look at it. Uh. So this will probably be somehow the biggest disaster of all time. <laughs> gentle listener and welcome to michael and ethan in some rooms with scotches ah, i did it oh, i did it wrong um hell gentle low listener we're in some rooms with Sco okay uh we're gonna scrap that we're gonna start over all right ready three two wait what comes after two okay i got this uh hi we're i'm ethan michael who are you <laughs> I'm Michael. And I predicted that this would be the biggest disaster ever. So I did predict that, and uh, I mean, I you know, a, a, a cynical listener would say that maybe I sort of predicted it and then did it in order to make myself correct. Um, but like, mm -hmm. no, no, yeah, that's my response just, to that. You're just a prophet, exactly. Uh, not an Old Testament one, though, because I don't want to get stoned if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I want to get stoned, but I don't want to get stoned. Never mind. Anyway, this is a family Got show. It. Um, so, hi. We're Michael and Ethan. We're in a rooms that scotches are in. And it's part three, so if this is confusing, it's not our fault. Um, I think historically the part threes have been the most confusing of our episodes. <laughs> but they shouldn't be, because everyone has always listened to parts one and two. Right. All right. Well, right. now we've let everyone cover that space on their Michael and Ethan bingo card. Um, <laughs> it's time to talk about what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> Michael, what are we doing? We're, we're drinking scotch. What scotch are we drinking? We are drinking this scotch. This one. This one right here. Yep. As everyone can see, this scotch is the Lagavulin Isla Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. The Offerman edition finished in Guinness casks, aged 11 years. Um... Which it's 2021, I think they they either released it this year or last year, which would make it 2010, 2009 or 2010, mm -hmm. uh, which feels right. I don't feel like looking up when Parks and Rec was big. Um, mm. it, it was around there. Yeah. And this, like, they didn't do it too late. Like, I think there's still a lot of love for the show and for Nick Offerman. Um, it does feature a pretty beautiful little... Uh, uh, tag specifically for the Offerman edition with like a mm -hmm. sort of a sepia toned wood cut adjacent looking um, portrait of Nick Offerman in a full suit with a full beard and mustache and a full head of hair mm -hmm. like as dignified and Scottish as he could possibly look um, accurate so yeah uh mm -hmm. I think that's as much words as I could say about 
the scotch. Uh, mm-hmm. So, that said, um, I guess I need to have my wife rappel into the studio and read the rules. <laughs> Hello, ceiling wife. Please read the rules. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Ceiling. Oh, and you're got. Oh, you're. Oh, oh, wow. You. Wow. You rep- she she repelled not only up through like the first floor of my house, but like mm-hmm. our house, I should say, several floors above that, which is pretty confusing because it's like a two story house, as far as I know. Um, something about non Euclidean. Talented she is. Yeah, there's something going on with non Euclidean space. I assume. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Uh. Yep. So. The script says we're not supposed to introduce the book until after we do the salute. That feels wild. Uh Even though I assume it's what we've done, like, this whole time. Every single time. Alright. It is the way it is done. Uh, well, in that case... Uh, man, I was gonna look up an actual Scottish salute, but here you go, Slantha. Uh, Hey wife, do you want some scotch? You brought your wife on the spaceship with you? My wife is on my spaceship. That's a reference we're not going to explain. Hey wife, do you want some scotch? I'm in the captain's seat of my spaceship. That's very good, but I also, you said I'm back, and I said I'm front, and I don't want to lose that mm-hmm. I did that joke. <laughs> uh, uh. Alright. Uh, so, what book are we reading, Michael? I don't know why I'm asking we, you. I'm the host. 
Uh, you, it's your prerogative to ask me okay, Michael, questions you want. Okay, Michael, what book are we reading? So, we're reading I Am a Cat by Sosuke Natsume. Excellent. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but that's my best guess. It's also my best guess, so we're going to call it right. Um, we'll go with it. Because as you know, if you uh, pronounce a name one way and only one way, you have a chance of being right. If you mm-hmm. pronounce the name two different ways, you have a 100% chance of being wrong. Right. That's logic. Yep. Also, such logic. Also? I was just, you know, we were talking about, like, the, you know, Western influences uh, Oh yes. of this book last session. And just as I was flipping through, which I do... You know, we both do sort of recreationally with every book that we mm-hmm. that we bring to the show. Um, I just uh, I'm trying once again. It almost doesn't matter, but I'm trying to figure out who uh, the speaker in this is. I just happened to flip past page <laughs> page fifteen. Um, okay. Okay, it wasn't the cat's master because the cat's master is referred to. Uh, we're talking about. You're talking to Nicholas Nickleby. Yes. Well, I just just this this the other day I the told estate. a certain undergraduate that Nicholas Nickleby had advised Gibbon to cease using French for the writing of his masterpiece, The History of the French Revolution, and had indeed persuaded Gibbon to publish it in English. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yes like just i, I want to say that this like and i'm trying not to take this in like a smart academic serious direction but that this right. like proves some of my theses from last from the last episode i guess from our first episode um about calling this like an international novel potentially because it's like mm-hmm. to get that joke You'd have to be yes. familiar with Nicholas Nickleby and uh, Gibbon and uh, the the fall of uh, so the fall of the Roman Empire, whatever that book is called, mm-hmm. um, and the French Revolution. Like to to sort out this joke, you'd have to know about all of those things, and it's such yep. like a Western feeling joke, like it's, it, you yes. know something people in Europe or or America would know. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know that it is a Western joke or, or just something for people in Europe and America. It's obviously not based on its presence in this book, but like it's in a Japanese book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, again, it's like, I don't know with what we talked about in the past about like tale of Genji and, you know, the, the development of the novel in Japan and in mm-hmm. Japanese, it's like, are we just all students of the Japanese novel? Like, is that? I don't know. Anyway, well, that's... if you go on in there too, um, it, the this person who's speaking says this undergraduate was a man of uh, almost eidetic memory, and it was especially amusing to hear him repeating what I told him word for word and in all seriousness to a debating session of d- the Japan Literary Society. Right. So here it apparently has some value to the Japan Literary Society to have many of these things incorporated but for him not to realize that it's all hogwash right i can only yeah 
Um, and then actually, well, it says it. Yeah, it does say that they were all listening. Right. the The audience like soaked it up and believed him. So that really tells us nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Well, I mean, I think this is, uh, if I remember right, and if I'm, you know, sort of rereading this right, uh, is it Cold Moon who's talking? It's the the aesthete is all he's described as that I'm seeing here. Just, I mean, it doesn't help that we have a character that we see it ever again. Dozens of pages of unattributed like exchange of dialogue, um, but yeah. Uh, it you know this this character is sort of a a trickster character and is you know mm-hmm. talking about some tricks that he's played. So, mm-hmm. but again, you have to assume a certain amount of familiarity with certain topics to even have an audience that you can play a trick on. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because he he his next his very next anecdote is about uh, some men of letters who happened to mention Theophano, Ainsworth's historical novel of the Crusades. Um, which is, again, just like a very, you know, Western reference. Like, yes. it, it reminds me of uh, when I worked in, in Madison, Wisconsin, having been to school for six years in Mankato, Minnesota, and I would always just talk about the cities. And finally, one of my coworkers oh, yeah. turned to me and was like, wait, where did you grow up that you just say the cities? Because um, around here we say, or in, in Wisconsin rather, we say the Twin Cities, right? Like, And we right. know what we mean. Mm-hmm. But to just say the cities is like, I don't know, it, it just strikes me as similar to him just saying the Crusades. Like everyone sort of knows uh-huh. what that is. Um, yep. you, know, you, know, you know what you mean. You know, yeah. Everyone knows what you mean in the context. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, yeah. I'm not trying to like claim this for, you know, sort of, uh, uh, imperially subjugate Japan to Western ideas, but it's like uh, the idea that like Asia or Japan specifically is like closed off and not conversant with both the history and the literature of, um, you know, of the West is, uh, if you ever harbored that sort of misapprehension, like this book would would just shatter it. Mm-hmm. It's um, Waver House. I've confirmed. Oh, okay, okay. This is Waver House. Um, I okay. So that that's uh, <clears throat> what's what's what made me realize that it was Waver House is actually a page that I was turning to. That's uh, you 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 were triggering some thoughts for me. I'm that's sorry. A, a question that I have here hmm. on page three hundred three. Um, the paragraph right about the middle of the page starts, uh, soon another visitor arrived. Yes. It goes on, since my master has very few friends, it's almost unbelievable that so many of those he has should choose to call today. Indeed, I've never known such members, such numbers visit in the space of a single day. Still, there it is. The visitors did come, and this particular visitor was a very rare specimen. I hasten to clarify that I shall be writing about him at some length, not because of his rarity, but because he has a significant part to play in that promised aftermath, which I am still in process of describing. I did okay. not know the man's um, name. Okay. I, I'm going to let you finish, 
But yep. I just want to note that this is yet more like Tristram Shandy ish, like accounting for the yes. text within the text. Yes, hundred percent. Okay, please keep going Absolutely. before we before yep. we lose. Um, I I do not know the man's name, but he looks about forty and sports a smart goatee on his long face, just as I think of Waverhouse as as an aesthete. So there it is. I see this new arrival as a philosopher. It's not that he's laid any kind of claim to philosophic status or blown his trumpet, his own trumpet in the Waverhouse style, but simply that as he talks to my master, he looks to me as a philosopher should look. I deduce that he must be another of my master's schoolmates, for they speak to each other in the familiar manner of very close old friends. Um, who is the philosopher? Is my question. Uh, as in, what is his name? What's his name? I mean, I guess based on this, we don't know. If this is something where I'm supposed to have, like, retained my reading of this book from, like, more than two days ago, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, you know, is it Suzuki? No. Suzuki? Suzuki is mentioned on the next page. Uh, in sure. connection with Waverhouse. I don't know. I, I guess I don't but that's, yeah. fully understand the question. Well, here's here's why I ask, because I think I know the answer. I think the answer is, this is Sosuke, not Sume. Oh, <laughs> I see. Okay. I think uh, he's written support, himself into the book, because... Support that assertion. I, okay. I, I don't think that you find his name. So if you find his name anywhere, that completely debunks my theory. Um, but I, I don't think I, his, his name is ever found. Okay. Um, also, so it's, it's a thing that he just comes into this conversation that they're having in the very next paragraph where this philosopher says, you mentioned Waverhouse. Now there's an extraordinary man as light and flossy as a goldfish food floating around on a pond. Don't you agree? So he's talking about Waverhouse saying, you mentioned Waverhouse. What's interesting though is we did not hear Sneeze mention Waverhouse. We heard the cat mention Waverhouse. Sure. So in the dialogue here, it's almost as though this character is responding to the cat, Uh which only the author can do. Sure. Um, you can explain that away that it's you know just in media race and whatnot but uh it doesn't seem like the sort of accident that would be um something natsume would or soski would do right um anyway uh so then as he goes on so he's described as a philosopher simply because he looks like a philosopher in that sort of perceptual tautology sure um but then he does talk philosophy he does talk religion um on page 307 where he's still talking here um he goes into this um first full paragraph on 307 says this method of fostering happiness where under a man becomes perfectly content not to cross mountains is perhaps best understood by confucianists and buddhists of the zen sects so here he's got this expertise in eastern religious thought which is an expertise of sosakis right we talked a little bit about that in previous episodes too um so which again you know the author can just put you know what he knows into any character he wants but then this ends a chapter. The, the chapter ends on this character on page 308. Sure. 
um, that um, he the the master is thinking about um, sneeze is thinking about all the visitors who had come and talked to him and he's weighing all of these things. Uh, and he says, Suzuki had preached that the wise man goes with the tide and always chuckles to the wealthy. Dr. Amaki had given his professional opinion that jangled nerves may be steadied by hypnotism. And our last visitor had made it very clear <laughs> that in his remarkable view that a man can only attain pe to peace of mind by training himself to be passive. It remains for a master to decide which course of action or inaction he wishes to follow. But one thing's certain, he cannot go on as he is and something must be done. Um, so there, he's just left thinking about all these visitors and the influence of all of them. Uh, the, the philosopher being the last one who advised passivity, right. um, that inaction. So just, you know, keep doing what you're doing <laughs> right. uh, is the, the author just saying, all right, I'm just here with you characters. Just, you know, keep it on, keep on going. Yeah. And certainly the like, anything. uh, Suzuki, or my master this, Suzuki this, Dr. Amaki this, and our mm -hmm. last visitor that, like, almost gives the game away in that it it appears to be, like, a pretty intentional non-naming of this, of this mm -hmm. character. Um, right. Like, it, it's hard to conceive who you could mean other than the author in that, in that context. Right. Um, maybe I've just become a, a drunk on your rhetoric, Michael. But that's uh, sure seems pretty obvious to me, or at least pretty clear cut. In as much as anything can be clear cut in a text like this, right, <laughs> right. And it's yeah. I, I mean, other authors have done it more explicitly. Sure, Dexter <coughs> Palmer. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like this is. What a, you know, I I hope I've made it clear so far that I am certainly not a scholar of Japan, Japanese culture, or Japanese yeah. literature. But like, what little I do know about Japanese culture is that it it's very sort of retiring. Um, sure. That like asserting sort of a um, not even a dominance, but like a a presence for oneself is done with like hmm. the greatest of hesitation. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard this might be a wild analogy, but I've heard that in, um, in the new Testament, when, when uh, the apostle Paul talks about having known a man who got called up to the fifth heaven or yep. um, however that passage goes, that supposedly he's talking about himself, but there's a convention in Greek culture and Greek literature where it's like, you don't assert yourself that way. Um, right. That, so, from what I understand, there's something similar in, in Japanese culture and, and uh, literature and rhetoric where it's like you you almost obscure yourself. So, mm. uh, again, unless I'm completely wrong about that, which is obviously possible, uh, yeah. you know, it, it fits with, uh, um, you know, this is the Japanese version of naming an idiot character at one of the parties in your novel, Dexter Palmer, <laughs> when you're... <laughs> when you are Dexter Palmer. Right. Well, and so I, I brought up Dexter Palmer and that passage of um, the dream of perpetual motion. Um, and what I as asserted, 
hypothesized at that time was mm-hmm. you know the little scene uh that the the main character imagines with Dexter Palmer is what Dexter Palmer was going through as he was writing the book and getting frustrated maybe with some writer's block he's throwing stuff and all that you know so the 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 author inserted himself there when he was getting all frustrated with the book itself mm-hmm. um this comes at the end of chapter one of part three or volume three of i am a cat and soski natsume only wanted to write one chapter right of the entire series but he was pushed to turn that chapter into an entire volume and then to write a second volume and now to write a third volume right and so he was getting sick of it and so here he is at the beginning of the last volume sick of it putting himself if i'm right into the novel sure. so it, there's there's just an interesting similarity there um that i think is fascinating Right. Oh, that's an interesting the the idea of them being frustrated with their work and and inserting themselves. Then, mm-hmm. do you get the sense that Dexter Palmer was frustrated with uh, Dream of Perpetual Motion at that point? Really, the only evidence I have of that in that book is the little imagined scene of Dexter Palmer who's pacing around by his desk and like sure. throws his cup of tea or something. And, and it's like the most steampunk masterpiece. Yeah, it's like it's like the most steampunk punk uh, um, version of portraying writer's block within a right. work. Right. Like exactly. I have I have I have lit the I have filled the oil lamps, but I have thrown the oil against the wall. Right. Um, <laughs> except this is the twenty first century Dexter. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, that seems that's that's a that's a really interesting parallel, honestly, especially for two authors who are clearly interested in metafiction to some extent. Right, right. Um, well, with that that metafiction idea too. I mean, so we talk about all the like Western literature that's in this or referenced in this, alluded right. to, and such. But the uh, I, I don't know how much like Japanese literature and things besides the the religion gets referenced. There there's some haiku I think, um, but not it, yeah. it's not highlighted quite as much. But what he does um, allude to a lot is current events. Right. Um, you know, there's the the war with Russia that's going on in the early parts uh, of of the novel, um, and then in volume three i think it's the last yeah the very last chapter um on page 435 there's a um i don't remember who's meant who's saying it but they they say you remember how the city crowds went wild people running here and there and even all over each other in a lunacy of welcome when prince arthur of Connaught came to tokyo in february 1906 well february 1906 was right between the publication of chapters one and two of volume three um, oh, interesting. That was like six months before this this volume was written. So, or that chapter was written where where it refers to it. So, really, really close um, current events are happening. Yeah, that's also really interesting because Connaught's in Ireland, right? 
which, which I guess, like, you know, there's again some more Western influence. <laughs> well, not only that, but like Ireland at this point is part of the UK. Um, mm. In fact, part of the British Empire. Uh, like, it, sure. that's just a really interesting. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just something, you know, that he ripped from the headlines or whatever, but like. Um, sure. At, at this point, like. Uh, we talked about, you know, Playboy of the Western World, and I gave more context for Irish history than anyone could want in those episodes, but, uh, this is, like, right in that, um, Mm -hmm. in that era. Yeah, Playboy, uh, premiered in 1907, um, so that's, like, I don't know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's interesting, A, historically, for, like, someone from Ireland who's mm-hmm. specifically like from Connaught to be in Japan as opposed to like a, a member of the British Empire or a, or right. like like you know someone in the English aristocracy um, uh-huh. again I don't know if that means anything for Japanese history or this book but uh, I, I did just search Wikipedia quick so sure. what what was going on in 1902 was the Anglo-Japanese Alliance. Um, okay. It was signed, um, and as a result of that, in 1906, um, Prince Arthur was um, ordered by, I think, King George V um, to go and um, honor the Emperor of Japan um, okay. in commemoration of that alliance. So. Sure. Why? Why him? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, without knowing more, you know, specifically about you know the the real details of the history, it feels to me just like you know, okay, we want to be a, a we want to keep the Japanese happy, but like we don't want to send any import anyone important right. over there to Asia. So, gonna send this so it's like Ireland. Here's yeah, like here's literally anybody who sounds impressive. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody we can you know slap a fancy robe and a medal on and say here's yeah. look royalty from i mean Britain. he probably was a prince of some kind uh yeah. you know in in ireland like royalty especially pre-english invasion royalty is like not always that big a deal because it's like every province had had like mm-hmm. a royal family you know it was a whole thing but um mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's that is just an interesting, and again points to like uh, some of the comments I've made about like if you were a grad student writing about this novel, yes. you might do it. You know, you might talk about internationalism or globalism as the is the mm-hmm. more zeitgeisty term, I guess. Um, sure. In this book, and like an Irish prince visiting from the British empire because of like an alliance that these guys made, like, you know, that would be, that would be, uh, right up there. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. Oh, well, yeah. What else, you know, that's, I, I, I just looked at it and that's, uh, it was cold moon saying that, and that's right in the mm-hmm. midst of cold moon talking about his violin Sure. Which is that long rambling story, and it's on this page where it comes to a conclusion. 
and all his listeners are like, "Well, that you, nothing happened. You didn't do anything. I, this is right. this is you know, uh, I find your story less than satisfactory." And Cold Moon answers, "Perhaps so, but it was the truth." Um, That's it. There isn't any more. No, no playing of the violin. <laughs> yep. Um, which a really kind of harkens back to that idea of a uh, a man attaining peace by training himself to be passive. Yeah. I don't know if that's too too far of a stretch, but it's just like this is a you know a whole story about something that didn't happen. Yes. Um. Yes. It, uh, you know, it's it reminds very Tristram me... Shandy. <laughs> yes, okay, that's the other thing I was going to say, is, like, especially late Tristram Shandy, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we talked about this during our Tristram Shandy episodes, but, like, in the earlier parts of Tristram Shandy, you have this idea of the interrupted story, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, or the interrupted sermon when uh, um, Lawrence Stern's actual sermon that gets inserted into... <laughs> The text of this uh, book uh, is then read through as a sermon of Parson York's by um, Uncle Toby and company. Um, you know, it's this idea of like, oh, okay, well, I started the sermon. Oh, wait, we have to interrupt it and say something. But it's like mm-hmm. the sermon eventually gets out, right? Like the, it, it right. gets read, it gets preached, probably not preached, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um in the late parts of the story, uh, what's the one? There's basically a story that gets started like seven times, and at no point does yeah. it get past like the second or the third paragraph in the story. And I, I know what you're talking it, about, but yeah, yeah, I should I should either look it up right now or know it off the top of my head, but I'm not gonna do either. Um, but the point being, <laughs> being uh, uh. In Tristram Shandy, it just feels like Lawrence Stern, you know, some of those late books, like, he's clearly dying, and, you know, there's clearly some, like, oh, if I were in better health, I would write this, but instead I have to do this. But, like, I feel like he's still having fun with it, and it's, like, some of that, that, like, story interruptus is, like... Mm -hmm him having discovered in earlier volumes that he could do a certain thing and now doing like a meta version of the meta thing he was already doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one almost feels like, uh, and you know, as usual, while I don't want to mind read authors, I'm trying to mind read this author. This one feels more like uh, Soseki just being like, uh, just like taking that idea as his, justification or basis and being like i'm i'm done i i'm done like here's this i guess like you know sort of i can do anything now so i'm literally going to yep (laughs) yes oh yes so Um, i wanted to say one other thing about uh this this really like interesting reading you did of uh, chapter one of um, mm. part three, or volume three, um, which I've sort of crystallized or focused into. Our last visitor had made it very clear that in his remarkable view, a man can only attain to peace of mind by training himself to be passive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 
the last like page in the book that I dog eared uh during this this read through of it. As usual, like this time I feel like I need two more read throughs just to get everything <laughs> even at like uh... a surface level. But um so uh, page 458, I don't know if I said that, but basically there's like uh, one very long paragraph that's not even started on this page, but takes up about mm-hmm. half the page. Um, yes. And uh, it's Singleman talking and uh, sort of comparing some old the older days with the newer days in Europe, mm. weirdly, again. Um, yeah, well, why? But, I don't understand. Okay. <laughs> uh, his, his first sentence on 458, In Nietzsche's period, things were sadly different. No hero shone on his horizons, and even if a hero had appeared, no one would have honored, respected, or even noticed him. When in a much earlier period Confucius made his appearance, it was relatively easy for him to assert his importance because he had no equals as competitors. Today, they're ten a penny, and possibly the whole wide world is packed with them. And then I'm going to, you know, elide yep. uh, some things. Uh, we sought freedom, and now we suffer from the inconveniences that freedom can but bring. Does it not follow that the Western civilization seems splendid at first glance? At the end of the day, it proves itself a bane? Uh, In sharp contrast, we in the East have always since long, long, long ago devoted ourselves not to material progress, but to development of the mind. That way was the right way. Now, that's a really interesting sentence, and I'm going to interrupt myself here. Um, Great. In the Tuttle edition, at least, that way, uh, way Mm -hmm. is capitalized. Um, And again, like, my understanding of Eastern literature and philosophy is... Uh, surface level at best, but I believe this is referencing uh, the Tao, as in the Tao yeah. Te Ching. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of the way is referenced throughout, you know, Chinese philosophy, especially uh, mm-hmm. Lao Tzu and, and the Tao Te Ching. Um, right. And it's this idea of an unspeakable but uh, very real idea of like order in the universe or the way that things should be right um so with that in mind he says uh now that the pressures of individuality are bringing on all sorts of nervous disorders we are at last able to grasp the meaning of the ancient tag that people are carefree under firm rule now that last endorsement of authoritarianism i want to leave aside for a second um (laughs) and look at the first part of the sentence now that the pressures of individuality are bringing mm-hmm. on all sorts of nervous disorders, like, yet again, that's uh, lost in the cosmos. That's, yes. like, something that Walker Percy would diagnose 75 years later, uh-huh. 80 years later, uh, in a book that, you know, as far as I know, has no reference to this book. Right. Um, but it's interesting that Soseki seeing the confluence of Western and Eastern culture, thought, mm-hmm. philosophy, religion is like diagnosing this so early on. Like this is the thing that like 20th century European, British and American writers thought they discovered, especially yeah. like post-World War II. Yep. 
Um, and it's 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 here. And it's 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 you know in in several Eastern religions, it's the the heresy of separateness. Um, right. That uh, you know you are somehow distinct and individual and separate from the rest. And so I mean, and with uh, Taoism too, it's the um, that that heresy is essentially you know heresy in strong quotes um is uh embodied in a preference for one or the other a preference for yin over yang or yang over yin um right. where the the dao would say you need both right together. um yeah and so to continue this uh this mm-hmm. uh quote um down to the end of the paragraph and it won't be long before Latsu's doctrine of the activating effect of inactivity grows to seem less of a paradox. Um, by then, of course, it will be too late to do anything more than recognize our likeness to addicted alcoholics who wish they'd never touched the stuff. What? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting, first of all, because, like, um, at least in the character... Oh, Singleman. Um, so Seki seems to basically say that there's like no easy or obvious solution to this. Yes. That like, you know, he's diagnosing a disease that has already taken root. And um, mm-hmm. again, Singleman at least, if not Soseki himself, like doesn't see a a way out of at least right. at least on a societal level or a cultural level um yes which i think is interesting and again not to try to like weight us down with too much like future history but like (laughs) it feels like the opposite of the way that the culture developed in so much as it like sort of reached a climax or resolved itself or was resolved in the in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm not saying like embracing Westernism more would have uh, prevented the tragedies of World War Two, but like it, if you take this and your knowledge of like what happened in World War Two and the the uh, um, you know the emperor worship stuff and some of that stuff, mm-hmm. it like almost feels like. It's not a pendulum swing, that's too simplistic, but it almost feels like there's these two, like, embodied ideas of mm. how a culture could go, um, and the most reactionary one was chosen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, the future history adds, adds context to... yeah this so i don't think it's out of place here yeah i don't know it's like you know uh i don't know not to like cheaply compare it to our time but it's as if someone in 2016 had been like "Mm, i think this election will you know someone in 2016 Mm -hmm. in america had been like i think this election will end in the first armed storming of the Capitol building since the War of 1812. 
It's it's obviously not quite that precise, but it's like right. It's almost that eerie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Well, and again, and, you, you know, know, anytime. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I was I was gonna say like if I time tra- if knowing what I know now, if I time traveled to 1905, 1907, 1911, I can't say I know what I tell them to do differently like i certainly right. you know don't claim that level of wisdom it's just right. like really eerie knowing how it all turns out reading this from over a hundred years ago right well and that's it's always an interesting exercise when you have a a character in what's in a lot of ways a satirical novel yeah, you you're never sure. I don't think what the author thinks about what the characters are saying, and I also don't know if that matters as much because he's presenting them saying these things. the The author is having right. the characters say it, and therefore he wants that spoken aloud, whether to mock it or to say, "Wait a minute." Or some combination. <laughs> um, yeah, or even the idea that, like, I think some authors, like, I think the most daring authors in any canon, Western or Eastern or international, however you want to say it, um, I think sometimes they will uh, present ideas without knowing what the reaction will be. And, but the, sure. the point is to present those ideas mm-hmm. and to say... Mm, you know, even even if they do have an opinion themselves, it's it's the idea that like you put something before an audience and you say, "What do you think about this?" And yeah. if what they think is, you know, this is hilarious, it's obviously satire. That tells you something. If they take it mm. very seriously, that tells you something else. Um, it's it's reminding me a lot of discourse around like Plato's dialogues. Oh sure. Um. And and obviously, like, when you have a book with, like, blocks and blocks of text that are just different characters discoursing on their opinions at length, like, it invites um, mm-hmm. reference to Plato's dialogues. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of the discourse around Plato's dialogues, historically, has been the idea, like, does this character speak for Plato, or does this character speak for Plato, or, right. you know... But often the the conclusion seems to be they all like the discussion is speaks for Plato, right? Right. And I'm and honestly that, I think is the best. I was going to say I'm, this book too. Yes, exactly. I I was going to say I'm honestly more confident that the discussion speaks for Soseki than that the discussion speaks for Plato. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Well, and, you know, when you look at this this quote that you just um, gave us, the very next paragraph after Singleman is talking is Cold Moon, and he says, All you fellows seem hideously pessimistic about the future, but none of your moans and groans depress me in the least. I wonder why. And, and, like, <laughs> they, they start picking on him, and um, Waverhouse just explains, uh, explains him away and stuff, but... Um, you know, that, that I think just highlights this idea that it is the discussion that represents, uh, Soseki, that it's, right. 
It's like this is well, this is a big issue, but yeah. <laughs> it's also okay. interesting because it acknowledges. I think there's a tension there also um, that I almost feel like I see in Sosaki and like not a lot of other authors, especially Western authors, and maybe even including Plato, of the difference between um, oh, there's shoot mm. basically the difference there there there's two parallel terms for it and i can't remember um imminence versus transcendence uh sure the idea like in plato's dialogues and like i think his philosophy as we know it sort of embodies this idea it's all transcendence it's all the idea that like through dialogue through ideas through recourse to forms uh, our discussions can have a transcendent quality that goes well beyond um, whatever, like, culture or time or type of person, you know, hu uh, <laughs> human or not human. I meant to say, like, man, woman, you know, old, young, etc. Mm -hmm. um, Plato tends to rely much more on the idea that, like, dialogue transcends that modern philosophers and philosophy adjacent people which at this point includes like literary writers among others um in the 21st century especially in the west uh tend to rely much more on the idea of imminence the idea that your perspective mm -hmm. is shaped by who you are are you white or black or you know latino or asian are you a man are you a woman are you old are you young you know what age are you what generation are you um and the idea that like how we see things including abstract ideas like is directly influenced by those things this discussion almost feels like it tries to do its best to like do both things like how much can we transcend our culture and our mortal frame uh but also how much does like we just got married and we're literally in a honeymoon phase you know affect uh how we look at things but then it, it implies the question to me like this little exchange you know all you fellows seem hideously pessimistic but none of none of it depresses me that's because you've just got married. Like, that exchange implies to me almost the idea that an imminent framing, like, you being in a particular situation and looking at something, isn't inherently false or isn't inherently not transcendent. Like, the way it's presented anyway, like, Cold Moon could be right. And sure. whether it's because he... um you know, be, because he's, like, newly married, he's looking at things the right way, or just a matter of chance, or something else, like, there's no reason to say Cold Moon isn't right versus, you know, uh, uh, um, Singleman, who just dominated the last page, page and a half. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. <laughs> that, yeah. 
Sure. Did, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I heard you say I'm right about everything forever, so I'm going to just... That's, sort yeah, of that's, that's what I said. That's for sure. Sit... I'm going to just sit on that like a proud hen on her egg. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as I think it says in Revelation. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll point out this passage from just the page prior, page 457. Oh, I thought sure you were going to say, see... I'll point out the part in Revelation where you've just no. blasphemed. Yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> Surely you can see that when anything that either of us might write has become quite meaningless to the other, then there will be nothing, let alone art, which we can share. We shall all be excommunicated from each other. So, (laughs) just, we were talking past each other. Communication is meaningless. Doesn't it? Just. (laughs) Right. Um, And then, like, from, I'm pretty sure slightly before that, uh... Wait. Shoot, I'm not sure who said this. Maybe still Singleman on 457. Uh, the stage of the literary future is already evidenced in England, where two of their leading novelists, Henry James and George Meredith, have personalities so strong and so strongly reflected in their novels that very few people care to read them. <laughs> uh, and, uh,. Oh, and that's, like, just before the thing you just quoted. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting to me, because, like, much as, like, a lot of this book is eerie and, like, you know, just in its foreshadowing of the historical future, like, mm. reading stuff like this is always interesting for the misses, uh, mm. in the sense that, like, Henry James is, like, still someone that people writing novels today read right yeah like that's you know um i don't know in either undergraduate or graduate studies in english like i don't know how completely common it is to uh encounter henry james but i would say it's not uncommon yeah. at the very least you're likely to have read daisy miller or the turn yeah of screw. That, i was gonna say um daisy as Miller's well as like high school reading for a lot of Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, sure. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it's at least there, and then like, you know, the farther you get in grad school or post grad, like, you're you're likely to have at least encountered something. Um, mm-hmm. People in certain specialties, you know, might have read much more of of James. Um, but like George, have you read anything by George Meredith? Like without no without googling, can you think of any works by George Meredith? I can't. No. Yeah, I also feel like I should be able to, but I can't, and I'm not yeah. going to cheat for once. No. Um, but like, yeah. So I don't know. It's it's just always interesting. It does make me want to like read, you know, look up George Meredith and, and read and see what's what's going mm-hmm. on there. But yeah. Um, I don't know. I found like I've read reading lists by like Ernest Hemingway and even Mark Twain, and it's really just like almost always it's like fifty percent of the things on them are like timeless classics, and fifty percent of the things on them are like I've never heard of this. <laughs> like it's something that was a bestseller for six months, and maybe it influenced you know The Sun Also yeah. Rises or The Gilded Age or something, but it's like you missed your you missed your. Uh, prognostication mm-hmm. there sir 
Yep. Uh, Did not last. But, <laughs> yeah. But this is all right. in connection with that, you know, the idea of the individuality um, being right. at the core of all this, this issue that the individual voice becomes so overwhelming that nobody cares and then the purpose of that individual voice to communicate is impossible right and it destroys itself right uh and that said um i think it's time for our individual voices whether in concert or not to destroy themselves because we're just about at the end of our time Michael, unless you had anything sort of last minute you wanted to say as far as this discussion. Cool. Uh, All right, gentle listener, please read along and use your individual voices that don't matter or exist to give us your feedback. Uh, You can go to the contact section of tapsterradio.org, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, you can get us at Room of Scotch on Twitter. I'm at Bartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I'm Captain Stormfield. All run together, lowercase. I'm not a real captain on Instagram. Um, it's just Captain Stormfield. The other stuff I said was commentary. Uh, Michael, where are you on the social medias? I am on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Excellent. Uh, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. There's Intermission, which is audio drama. There's Us Play Fiasco, which is like RPG slash improv. There's Freddy Goes to a Podcast, which is another one about books. There's Pokemon Rollout, which is RPG and a bunch of other words. Um <laughs> Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addicts, other ones, uh, wherever you get them. We don't pay to advertise, so that's how others can learn about us. Us? Michael, anything else? No. Uh, So that said, thank you, Michael. Until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if... Uh, the lack of ability to communicate with ourselves or anyone else makes us. Okay, we love you. Bye. Bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.